0: This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. This morning's scripture reading is from the Gospel of Matthew chapter seven, verses 13 through 20. Now, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. This is God's word. Amen. Please be seated.
1: So the gate is narrow and the way is hard. If you're like me, when you think about things being narrow or hard, difficulty comes to mind and perhaps particular people come to mind. Unique circumstances and struggles, the frustrations uh, that seem to kick up obstacles in our way and make progress hard and make going forward terribly narrow and difficult. But I want to invite you to hear these words about the difficult, hard, narrow way of Jesus in their context and to think not of that person or that struggle or that circumstance or that disaster, but rather of the challenge Jesus has been laying at our feet. That the way is hard and the gate is narrow precisely because of the glorious call that Jesus has given to us. I'm reminded of uh, a book, The Lonely Man of Faith, written in 1965 by a Jewish rabbi named Joseph Soloveitchik, and he was writing in the beginning of it about Genesis, the first few chapters, and he describes how Genesis depicts in two different sort of diptychs or portraits the creation story, kind of different Uh, angles on the same event and in Genesis 1, Rabbi Soloveitchik describes what he calls the picture of the majestic man, of Adam who's given this remarkable calling, uh, who Adam and Eve are called to be fruitful and multiply, to subdue the earth and to have dominion. It describes creativity, it describes uh, activity, it describes uh, this action to go out and to spread and to think entrepreneurially and, and to go get it as it were. And then he describes Genesis 2 and the calling of what he calls covenantal man. Adam is commanded. Adam is restricted. Certain trees are to be eaten, certain are prohibited. Certain ways are to be followed, others are to be avoided. It's a call to be submissive to the Lord. It's a call to be obedient to God's direction. And the rabbi pointed out that It's not that one or the other, sort of the exertive activity of Genesis 1 or the deferential submissiveness of Genesis 2. It's not that one or the other is right, the other is wrong, but that we're called to live the tension of both, to go about the activities of our day and using the gifts and strengths that God's blessed us with in a submissive manner, in a deferential fashion, in a posture of faith. And that's hard. That was hard for Adam and Eve. That was hard for the Israelites of old. That's hard for those sitting at Jesus' feet. And I, I suspect that's hard for each of us. That the way is narrow. The way is hard. The call is difficult. Precisely because Jesus is calling to address the full breadth of our lives. That the narrow gate is matched by... The wide concern of Jesus. He's not interested in fixing some narrow portion of your life. I was struck yesterday. I had to go after months and months of not following through on what I should have and replace tires on my car. And I absolutely hate going to auto repair stores. Precisely because I go in knowing, sort of head hanging and cowering, that I should have done this six months ago and I'm going to go in and sort of get talked to about how terrible the tires are and I should have done this long ago and I'll repent and I'll sort of cower my head and yes, I know. And, and I would hope that would be it, but that's never it. You give them an inch and they take a foot because they will invariably be checking and finding other things. In fact, I thought I'd brilliantly figured it out yesterday. My, my eldest son and I go and we're going to avoid them asking to repair other things by just leaving. We walked down the street. We went a half mile away. But you'd better believe my phone starts ringing. They have found other things in the car that ought to be fixed. Other things of grave concern. Other things that they would be incredibly willing to fix for me. And so I have to go through the motions of saying, no, stick to the tires. Let's, let's follow through on what we, we came to deal with. Jesus is not content to stick with putting a new set of tires on us, with polishing us up, with dealing with what you do on Sunday, what you do with your religious protocols. But in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is addressing wholeness. He, he gets in your business, as it were, and he addresses every nook and cranny of your life. And it's precisely because of that wide concern And precisely because of his broad promise to provide in every area of our lives that the gate is narrow and the way is hard. And we don't like that. We don't like someone addressing every area of our lives. We don't like someone suggesting that we are called to their way, that they are the truth, that life comes in the way they promise and only therein. That's not new for folks who take selfies. That's not new for the youth of today, whoever you might think that is. Kids being more self-infatuated, whoever's two years younger than you. This is as old as time that, that we don't like to be directed. We don't like others to suggest how we ought to lead our lives. Long ago, you could read in the 19th century of Ralph Waldo Emerson, who would say that whosoever wants to be a man has to be a nonconformist. That sticking your chest out and your chin up is a part of being mature and adult and not conforming to others' wishes but doing what you want. And so he commended self-reliance, that great commendable trait. Or you might remember the, the famous song of Frank Sinatra, Everything going by, he did it my way. And of course, this month is the month of graduations coming up in late May, and that horrifically anti-Christian book will be passed on, so innocuous in form. I received it at high school graduation, let this be an intervention, (laughs) that you not give your graduates Dr. Seuss's, oh, the places you'll go. You have brains in your head. You have feet in your shoes. You can steer yourself whatever direction you choose. You're on your own, and you know what you know, and you are the guy who will decide where to go. Your boss might disagree. Your teacher might challenge that. Your spouse or roommate, your friends or parents might think that a bit odd, but we nonetheless pass it out every May and June, and it fits so much with what we love to cherish and herald, that we do it our way, that we're self-reliant. And yet here's Jesus. He says "The, the gate is narrow and the way is hard, not because you've got to make it on your own, but precisely because he wants you to surrender in every facet of your life. He wants you to hand over the reins and trust him. I think we've got to think, secondly, not just about how the way is hard and the gate is narrow, but how we can so misunderstand this. We can oftentimes think about the narrow way and either misconstrue it ourselves or find that others misconstrue it as some sort of snooty, snobbish superiority complex. If, If we hear from Jesus that few will take us up on this way, we... We may think, okay, I don't have the comfort of the crowd, but I can at least have the cockiness of the avant-garde. I can be like the person who's discovered a musical treasure, some sort of indie group that's not known by the masses, that isn't out there on Pandora and so forth, but that I, as sort of an elite person, can be aware of. And of course, as soon as they hit it big, sellouts, right? That's just, that's mainstream. That's not interesting. We, we can, at times, be just as haughty and cocky about being the avant-garde, clickish sort of person as we can take comfort from being in the crowd and just fitting in. And oftentimes that applies spiritually. If we're going to follow the way of Jesus, we can develop a sense that we are somehow superior. We are somehow... Uh, higher, more moral, more intelligent, more spiritual, more serious than those around us who don't follow the way. But again, we we just have to pay attention to context. Consider the ways that in this sermon alone, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is describing this narrow way and ask if they commend narrow-minded cockiness or if they don't suggest a way of ever-increasing humility into the full breadth of your life. You'll remember that we began weeks ago paying attention to those first Beatitudes where blessedness and happiness were defined as the experience of those who are poor in spirit, those who are merciful to others, those who are meek in their character, And those who are committed to being peacemakers like their Father in heaven as they're mistreated by others. And we read on, as as we're given the mission of being salt and light, we live before others as a witness, not to draw attention to ourselves, but that they might see you and give praise to another, to your Father who is in heaven. And we pressed on through those contrasts in Matthew 5, 20 to 48, and we saw that Jesus is not commending an external spirituality that flaunts and struts its stuff before others but hides its uh, self-infatuation within, but that he's always calling us to further, broader discipleship, that he's wanting us to relinquish what's going on in our heart as much as the way we might speak or act to our neighbor. And then we saw in chapter 6, As he gets in our business and addresses our religion, our piety, whether it's our philanthropic giving, whether it's our prayer in private and public, whether it's fasting and other acts of devotion, that we're not to parade it in public. We're not to weaponize our worship. We're not to do it to display our religion or our significance. But we're always to do it as an act of trust that we have a father in heaven and that he provides daily bread. And so what we see again and again and again is that we're called to a life that is apart from the comfort of the crowd, a life that doesn't involve the cockiness of the avant-garde, being those few who know and can cherish what they have over others, holding it against them. But we're called to a life of this remarkable witness that will be difficult, that will involve relinquishing again and again areas of our life to Christ. And and so we see here that the difficult way actually leads us closer to others in love and service, not away from them in some sort of superiority. And so in many ways, I think this passage, like last week, where Ben led us to consider the dangers of cynicism or hypocrisy that It's drawing the whole sermon to a close, and it's reminding us of the seriousness of the call that life and death are in the balance, and that we can so easily turn even obedience into our own sense of self regard. And Jesus is aware. Jesus knows that difficulty seems insurmountable. Jesus knows that commands seem so stark, so overwhelming. And so he shifts. As Damien was reading the verses, I suspect it might have felt to you like he shifts quite a bit from verses 13 and 14 describing this narrow way to suddenly describing these false prophets. It's sort of like Jesus suddenly goes complete non sequitur and, and shifts the topic. But I actually think there's something profound to seeing why it comes up here that we reflect well on the role of the prophet and the call of the true, not the false prophet. Jesus realizes he is calling us to something radical, submitting every area of our lives, entrusting our every hope to God's provision. And that is rare, that is narrow, that is hard and difficult. And so God gives grace. God gives grace for the journey. Just as we read in Ephesians 4 where we learn of the ascended and exalted Christ who having gone up to the heavens continues to give because he knows that the calling he's left his church is a high and lofty one and so he gives gifts to others. And we read there like here that one of those key gifts is that he provides leaders There we read of apostles and evangelists and prophets and teachers and pastors. Here we read of the prophet, the role of a leader as a gift of Christ to help sustain the people on their way. This is not new. Jesus isn't cooking this up for the first time. If you know your Old Testament, you'll know that as the Israelites were being brought through the wilderness and they're about to be taken into the land of Canaan, the promised land, it's gonna be, it's going to be a big move up. They're going to have their own place. They're going to have fortified cities. They're going to enjoy security. They're going to have barns and storehouses. They're going to be able to save up and store up for times of famine or or trouble. And it's a time of great luxury and a place of, of remarkable provision. It's flowing with milk and honey. And you could imagine how they would be leaving a a sojourning migrant lifestyle where it's pretty easy to know that you need bread tomorrow and that you ought to pray to God. He, after all, is the baker who dropped the manna from the heavens. And and so it's, it's rather easy to be inclined to depend on him for food tomorrow. You don't have a farm to run. You don't have a store to go to. So he is your one option in the wilderness. And God is aware that they're about to enter a time like that where most of us live, where you're probably not too terribly worried in most cases about having some food tomorrow. You're probably not too worried about folks suddenly flooding and attacking the city. You're probably not too worried about matters of life and death, and so it's easy to go complacent. It's easy to think yourself self-reliant. It's easy to buy into Dr. Seuss and think that you just get to do what you want and you can make your way and you can provide for everything. And so God gave the Israelites the Levites. The Levites weren't notable for their intelligence or their religiosity. Rather, they were a a parable. They were the only tribe who didn't get their own land, didn't get their own inheritance, basically didn't have a bank account or a credit card to go to. They depended wholly on God's direction and provision through others. And it wasn't that they were bad, that they didn't deserve something, it's that they played a unique role in demonstrating to every Israelite what really was true of every Israelite. Even the ones who did have land and did have a harvest and did have storehouses, they didn't build that and God gave them that. And the Levites are a living illustration of that reality, that whether you have much or you have little, you know that you receive it from God. And so, like the Levites, amongst Israel of old, Jesus here commends the prophet today. The prophet who's called to deliver a word from God. Not of their own wisdom, not of their own intuitions, not of their own opinions, but the word of God. That it would be the norm and that we would address everything it says, even when it's uncomfortable, even when it's unpopular, But that it would also be the limit, that we wouldn't go beyond it, that we wouldn't spout off just because we think it needs to be said, but that we would only speak so far as God's word itself speaks. That kind of direction, that kind of guidance, following that way, that truth, that life, in the life and calling of the prophet is an illustration to everyone. Whether you're a plumber or an entrepreneur, whether you're an inventor or a teacher, Whether you're a nurse or a doctor, whatever you may be doing in whatever facet of life, in whatever responsibilities at home or in the neighborhood, you live under the direction of God. You may not have the specific outlines like we find in the pastoral epistles, basically giving you the job responsibilities laid out. But you do live at God's direction and you work unto the Lord. And the prophet is meant to be a living reminder of that. That the fact that they live so directly and they minister and work so directly at God's beck and call, at his provision and his guidance is a symbol to all of us, whatever we do and wherever we go. The catch is there are good and bad prophets. They're true and false illustrations. I know this terribly well. Um, my wife and I both grew up in the church, both baptized as babies, and our sons have been as well. And uh, we've got a fairly bad track record with baptisms. The, the pastor who baptized me, the pastor who baptized my wife, and the, pap- past, the pastor who baptized my oldest son have all been defrocked. They've all lost their ministerial credentials for a variety of different reasons over the decades. So I pray regularly for one of my best friends who baptized my other son. And we've stopped having kids. We're not gonna put anyone else in danger. But I can tell you in each of those situations, the false prophet, the persons whose whose words or witness doesn't match direction by God, can cause terrible, irreparable harm. It can lead to hearts going callous. It can lead to openness to Christ closing up. It can lead to hopes being dashed. It can cause generational struggles that are terribly hard to get past. And so Jesus says, not only that prophets play a key role, but he says, beware in verses 15 and following, beware of the false prophet. And he's surely addressing folks like the scribes and the Pharisees who he's been alluding to throughout the sermon. And he says here in verses 16 and 20, you will recognize them by their fruit, by their fruit. It's a, a phrase and a term that appears several times in the gospel account of Matthew. And it's interesting. It It appears in two different ways, and we we do well to pay attention to the two different ways in which uh, fruit comes forward. Earlier in the gospel account, uh, in chapter 3, verse 8, John the Baptist is addressing the scribes and the Pharisees and is calling them, the religious leaders, to repent and to produce fruits worthy of repentance, that they would turn over areas of their life that are worthy of the kind of surrender God calls for. Now, we can think of worthiness as sort of a monetary thing, that, that you pay something that merits or matches its worth. That's not what that word means there. It, it addresses fittingness, something that is appropriate. John is not calling them to somehow uh, obey in ways that somehow earn or merit God's favor and salvation. He's simply saying that they ought to repent in ways that fit all that God has done in redeeming them. If God has provided for their eternal life, they shouldn't be hesitant to turn over their earthly life to God as well. If God has provided the bread of heaven and the cup of salvation, you shouldn't hesitate to trust him for daily bread. And so he's calling for fruits worthy or fitting of repentance in every area of life. He's calling for a a life and a, a behavior, a walk and a witness that is truly entrusted to God and his provision. But then secondly, if you read on in the gospel account of Matthew, in chapter 12, verse 33, Jesus himself will bring up this idea of the tree and of its fruit. And he'll say this there, that you declare the tree healthy and its fruit good, or you declare the tree diseased and its fruit bad. And he's rebuking the Pharisees again. This idea that the the demonstration of the truth of a prophet is found in what they say and what occurs. That the prophet who doesn't call it straight, the prophet who doesn't speak God's word is thereby shown to be a false prophet. That their diseased nature invalidates them. And so we we see here two concerns. They're concerns that Paul will bring up addressing young Timothy in 1 Timothy 4:16, where he calls Timothy, this young pastor, to keep a close watch on yourself and on your teaching." And he says to him that you persist in this, for in so doing you'll save yourself and your hearers. that his own witness and walk and his teaching and instruction. You might say that the leadership of both deed and word is crucial in demonstrating openness to God. And we ought to know that this is not easy for leaders. When you give someone a microphone, when you put someone in a spotlight, when you grant someone a position of power, they are going to be naturally inclined always sort of to return to home and to center And to speak out of what seems most obvious and fundamental to them. And yet the the prophet is called not to speak what they think. What they imagine. What they wish. But what God says. The prophet is called to be the very first to put aside personal preference. That's why it's terribly odd and ironic that we live in a culture where leadership is viewed as privilege. There's a sense in which, of course, that's true and in which discriminating against certain people is a dehumanizing thing. But anyone who's in a position of leadership, especially in the church where you're called to be a prophet or a minister of the word realizes that it's precisely not a position of privilege, it's not for nothing that some wear the collar around the neck to demonstrate that you are constrained that you don't get to spout off, you don't get to have your way, Frank Sinatra beside the point, but that you're called to say what God says, to say all that God says, and to say no more than God says. And that in so doing, you're not demonstrating that you're uniquely spiritual or you're somehow uh, more effectively religious, but you're a reminder like those Levites of what's true of everybody, that all of us are called to live dependently on God. All of us are called, whatever your vocation is, to listen and to ensure that it's a vocation, not simply a job, not simply a task, but that you do it unto the Lord, that you do it out of the strength the Lord provides. You do it unto the calling and vision for your life that God has granted, that you would glorify him, that you would serve your neighbor. And that the, the true prophet, not necessarily the most charismatic prophet not necessarily the smartest or most educated prophet but is the prophet who entrusts themselves both in what they say and how they lead and in how they live and walk that they would do so in a way worthy of the Lord repentant in every sphere of life Jesus does call us to a a narrow gate, to a hard way, precisely because God, our Heavenly Father, wants to provide for our every need. Because Jesus wants to redeem you, not only from your eternal struggles, your sin, your transgression, your guilt, and your sorrow, from all the death that marks our spiritual lives, but he also wants to transform your earthly existence your relationships, your work, your contemplation, your hopes and dreams, your fears and loves. He wants to be not only the the bread of heaven and the cup of salvation, but to be your daily bread. And for those of us who are sons of Adam and daughters of Eve, that is difficult to surrender and to trust. That's unnatural to take our hands off the wheel And to listen to direction. And one of the ways in which God seeks to strengthen us in that resolve. And to further us in that conviction. And to bless us in that posture of faith. Is the illustration of the prophet. The true prophet. The surrendered prophet. The prophet whose words and witness. Whose walk and way is a way of faithful surrender. Not of bold bravado, not of somehow sort of their own individual expressivism, but of faithful trust and reliance on God. Let's pray and ask that God would grant us that kind of illustration and witness. Let's pray and ask that God would shape in us that same kind of trust. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We look to him. He is ultimately the true prophet. Who not only spoke your words, perfect and true, graceful and life-giving, but who walked all the way through the valley of the shadow of death, ultimately surrendering his own will that yours might be done. And we thank you that through the years you've granted to us those who would be illustrations and portraits of that witness. We thank you that you have granted us leaders and prophets who point us to your word and who illustrate your faith. And we pray that each of us might be granted deeper resolve and stronger hope that you are a God who provides, you are a God who is promised, and that you are a God who can be relied upon. Help us all to surrender. Help us all to repent of our self-regard and self-importance. Help us all evermore this day and in days to come to delight in you as our Lord and Father, as our King and Redeemer. For it's in your strong and saving name that we do pray. Amen.